This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Hello and welcome to Star Stuff, a space podity. Uh, today we're going to do an episode that I know our regular listeners, like if you listen to the episodes regularly, you know I've been wanting to do this for a very, very long time. We will be doing a scientific review of Project Hail Mary by Andy Ware. So we're very excited to do it. I have finally collected a whole bunch of nerds around Lowell who have read the book. So uh, with me to do this review is astronomer uh, Dr. Casper von Braun. Hi, very, very nice to meet you. Thank you for uh, allowing me to, part, to be part in this. I, I have never been part of a podcast before, so you have special oh, powers. Really? Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry this is your introduction to it. <laughs> Perfect. Couldn't ask for a better one. Astronomer Dr. Catherine Clark. Hello. Excited to be talking about this book. It's fantastic. Yes, and we have you to thank for spreading the Project Hail Mary love around Lowell, I heard. <laughs> uh, happy to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and one of our fabulous educators and one of uh, the marketing department science communicators, Claire Gibson. Hello. I'm really excited to talk about this story. I love reading, so I'm excited. And um, you read this book just for this podcast episode, right? I did, yes. I mean, it was on my to-be-read shelf for quite a while, but um, it kind of bumped up a little bit with the incoming podcast idea. Well, I have to ask to start out, what do y'all think of it? What did y'all think of this book? First opinions, impressions. Casper, I'm assuming you just finished it recently. I did. I think it's fantastic. I, I, I really do. I think um, I, I listened to it as an audio book. And I would like to actually give a shout out to the person who read the audio book as okay. well. I, Ray Porter, I think was his name. Where is his name? And I think it's uh, really well done. What I The, the things I liked about it a lot, since we're talking about the scientific part of it, is that um, Andy Weir touches on a lot of different kinds of sciences and makes them accessible to the normal person. It's very easy to to hide between behind some science lingo where you just lose everybody and everybody just accepts it. But as the same with you, you know, we all have a basic understanding of a variety of sciences and. I thought it was very impressive how he navigates his way through that and and answers even some of the obvious and even complicated questions with relatively simple approaches. And I, I thought that was terrific. And that's not even starting on the story, which I thought was outstanding as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, Catherine, you kind of mentioned uh, the way things are explained or maybe like over explained in your notes that I stole. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Well, I was going to agree with Casper that I think these scientific concepts are explained extremely well and span a wide variety of topics from physics to astronomy to chemistry to biology. Uh, and something I really admired as well was that every problem the protagonist, Raylan Grace, encounters 
which is many <laughs> throughout the book, yeah. um, it's always met with the scientific method. Um, he right. develops a hypothesis of what could be going wrong. Um, he develops an experiment to test his hypothesis, uh, carries out the experiment, and either has evidence in support of his hypothesis or you know needs to try something else. So I thought that okay. was very admirable. He definitely has the brain of a scientist. Um, I first read The Martian by him a few years ago and loved it. Um, and when this book came out, I was really excited because it touches on um, some even more advanced and interesting topics in astronomy. Um, mm -hmm. So I think he's a very talented writer at mm -hmm. discussing the scientific method. Nice. So you were you appreciated the the, the science struggle that you saw. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Obviously, much higher stakes than, um, you know, the science we're doing on a daily basis at Lowell. Right. But um, thank God. <laughs> yeah, thank God. Glad I'm not stuck on a different star system. Yeah. Well, that's why it's called Hail Mary, right? I mean. Right. <laughs> Claire, what do you think? Um, I loved it. I mean, like Catherine, I started with The Martian. That was the first book that I read by him. Um, and then I read Artemis yeah. and then this one, which is kind of just like completely different than his other books. It's much more expansive, mm -hmm. much more like epic, I guess. Um, like broad mm -hmm. reaching goes farther places than we ever have before, at least with within Andy Weir's universe. Um, and I, I really appreciated right. that. And also like what Cather uh, Catherine and Casper said, I think Andy Weir does really good in this book with just kind of bringing up the question of what is a scientist? What makes a scientist? Because we mm -hmm. encounter a scientist from another world. And like, what does that look like? Maybe there's something universal about what scientists are like and how they think. And I thought that was really interesting. Right. The science minds. Yes. So if you um, are listening and you made it this far into the podcast, which I hope you have, we've only been going for like five minutes. Uh, stop listening if you want to read the book. We are going to spoil the book for anyone who hasn't read it after this point. So you heard it here first, probably not first, but if you haven't read this, you should. It's a great book. It's fantastic. It just like piqued my curiosity and a whole bunch of things in astronomy that, like I said, if you've been listening to the podcast for any amount of time, you know, I bring it up every time I find the smallest connection. So uh, yeah, stop listening if you're convinced and you're going to go read it and then come back after you read it. Uh, if you don't mind spoilers, we're going to go ahead and kind of get into some of the details. And I can't wait to hear what you guys think of, you know, from a scientist's perspective, was this done right? Was it done well? You know, uh, what are some, uh, some things that you noticed while you were reading it? And for the readers, and then just for us, because I, I, I hadn't read it since December, um, I'm, I am going to do a, a bit of a review. So, uh, yeah, spoilers. <laughs> It'll be made into a movie, too, you should say. I, yeah. I would say it will be made into a movie with Ryan Gosling. So it was confirmed. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know that. Yay. Yeah, Metro <laughs> Goldwyn Mayer bought the bought the rights from Andy Weir, and supposedly Ryan Gosling does it. I, just because I live in LA doesn't mean I know all the things that are going on in Hollywood, but <laughs> I would say that's a fairly reliable piece of information. So you can't just text Ryan and ask him, like you know, <laughs> you're in LA, I'm waiting right? for his text back. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
So the outline is that Ryland Grace is the sole survivor of a suicide mission to stop an alien organism that feeds on stars. And this organism is called astrophage. Am I saying that right? From what you guys, the science people? Astrophage, yes. Um, Which is causing the apocalyptic scenario of the sun dimming. His mission is to find out how to stop the astrophage and send the data back back via unmanned probes. Uh, In his travels, he comes across an alien, Rocky, from a planet, Arid, which I'm really excited to talk about that because we do a lot of exoplanet like studies at Lowell. That's what we're famous for, right? We've always done that. Started observing, I mean, not exoplanets, but just planetary science in general. So can't wait to hear what y'all think of that. Um, and Rocky is facing the Rocky's planet is facing the same problem with their star. They learn to communicate. They find a solution. And, um, you know, on the way home, they run into some trouble, which again is just very Andy Ware, in my opinion. There's always something going wrong in space, which also I don't know. I've never been to space, but I feel like that checks out. <laughs> a million things that can go wrong. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, Ryland sends Earth what it needs to stop this astrophage alien uh, apocalyptic scenario. And he gives up his chances to go home and he goes back to save Rocky. So is that ringing bells with all of you guys before we move on? Is that useful? Just like a quick reminder of the, the general plot. I would, I would add to it that perhaps the, the, you know, you mentioned the aliens and the apocalyptic scenarios. It's not like the classical science fiction alien movie with some big monsters that scream at you and have lots of saliva falling from their mouths, but it's actually a microorganism that just feeds Ooh. off it's kind of in a natural way and doesn't isn't out to kill planets or to something, but it's it's literally right. a very small organism that just is bred and lives off of carbon dioxide, and it's somewhat of a natural, uh, naturally occurring thing almost. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so uh, it's it from that point of view, I think it's different from other science science mm-hmm. fiction novels that you may encounter. So right. I thought I'd I'd add that to it. Right. This isn't the thing or it's not the id from Forbidden Planet. Right. It's just it's an a, invasive species, invasive alien species, yeah. <laughs> which is more uh, realistic. Right. Like if there's uh, alien yeah. life that would reach us, it's probably a bug of some sort. Right. I mean, I know it's not a bug, whatever, uh, a, an organism. A microbe. Yeah. It's a microbe. A microbe. Right. right. Yeah. I agree. So, um, yeah, that, that feels about right, I think, from what I've heard on this podcast, at least. Um, astrophage, the name, means star eater in Greek. Like, that's the etymology of it, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of all-encompassing. But I agree with the sentiments already said that, like, microbial life is probably what we're going to encounter first. And especially invasive species, like here on Earth, we have a lot of in- invasive species that flourish in, in different places. And I think that's, like, testament to what life can do and that this can expand outwards into the universe, which is wild to think about. And personally, this is the first encounter in literature or science fiction in general that um, has portrayed microbial life in this way. Like it's always been more intelligent alien life and I've never encountered this microbial alien life. So I really appreciated the input yeah. this in this story. Yeah. And it's one of those things, like I feel like people might be, 
I don't say disappointed, but you know, you think of alien life and whenever we get on the podcast and my nerdy astronomers are like, well, actually, <laughs> um, you know, most alien life will probably be some organism. And it's like, oh, we want like some smart, weird thing because that would be exciting. But um, the book makes it really exciting. It, it It's not boring because it's an organism. So... Definitely to me doesn't, it's quite the opposite. Yeah, it's super realistic in my opinion. Um, So let's start at the beginning, right? As most stories do. Uh, The book opens with Rylan Grace and he wakes up next to two dead bodies. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know why he's there. He starts to investigate his surroundings and his memories like slowly start to return. He realizes he's in a spaceship named Hail Mary and his dead crewmates were sent to investigate something called the Petrova problem. So um, from what y'all remember from the beginnings of this book and him waking up in this sleep pod like uh for like extended space travel uh did anything pop out at you um i guess at the beginning i know claire there is something that you were mentioning about uh the petrova when he was determining what that was at least yeah um if i recall i think he like made this weird connection between like seeing some sort of red line i think it was blood um to the Petrova line, which is kind of like in when we observe it or when the astronomers in the book observed it kind of showed up as a red line. And if I remember correctly, but um, I really liked the beginning because it was like a puzzle and the whole book is like a puzzle where we're putting little pieces together at a time. And so like you never get the whole story at once. Like you're learning about Ryland Grace as he's going through all of these struggles, which is, I think, really fantastic. Um, and just at the beginning when he's like trying to figure out what his own name is, uh, it's just how our brain works, like the weird connections that our brain can make with totally random things. And I think that was really fun to read about for mm-hmm. me. Totally. I, I can't even agree any more than that. I think it's fantastic. These two timelines that happen simultaneously, or almost three, the real timeline, you know, minute by minute when he's on the ship and how he remembers his own past and then how the past kind of you know happens. So this, you know, some, sometimes it's just his memory. Sometimes it's actually a, a story of the other other characters in the book, and how the three of them um, kind of evolve at the same time. And just like Claire said, sparked by weird connections in the brain. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. I like that a lot. And one thing that I mentioned before, you know, it's a kind of uh, saying how how wide. Um, spread the sciences. What I really like too is the characters in his book. He he uh, he has them from all different kind of nationalities, which I really appreciate, especially from people in the U.S. Don't no disrespect, but the U.S. is very self-centered, and there's you know there's <laughs> other countries out there too. And and wait, what? There I, are other I, countries out there? <laughs> I know. Back you know I'll, send you, I'll send you a list. It's not many. It's okay. But I right. I love that the, the boss of the world is a Dutch woman. I think that's fantastic. I love that. It's, <laughs> you know, I, I love that. It's such a great idea. It's not the obvious. Yeah 
whatever president of something something it's a you know it's mm -hmm. a scientist and she just has the authority to do everything and there's the 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 french scientists and the I, from all over the place and i think it's really yeah. cool how it shows the the international collaboration to to address this literal literally worldwide apocalyptic problem sorry i mm -hmm. digress a little bit but anyways claire i wanted to agree with you and i like the the parallel lines and how he remembers things I think it's yeah. fantastic, right from the get-go. Right, I think the book starts with "What is two and two or something like that. Uh -huh. That's the first sentence or something like that. He's a math teacher, right? Science, he science has teacher. a he's a science teacher, right? <laughs> this problem is is you know very highbrow. Like not everyone knows about the beginning. It's very classified. All this stuff. What? Like, I guess I'm just curious, what would be the likelihood of a teacher getting that far in this situation in the real world? Well, I, he also has the background uh, as a research scientist. Um, so he was a research scientist before yeah. he left the field um, and decided to become a teacher instead. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I think anyone would struggle in that situation, no matter mm -hmm. their background, even if they're trained for this astronauts or military or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, I was going to mention earlier, I think that was one of my favorite parts of the book as well. This is jumping a little bit ahead, but when, mm -hmm. you know, this whole time he thinks, oh, I must have been so brave to volunteer for this mission. Uh, oh. knowing it's a suicide mission. And then when he remembers that he didn't, in fact, volunteer, he was forced to go. Um, he breaks down a little bit, but he doesn't let that deter him. And he proves that he is that brave person who's able to save mm -hmm. the world. Um, so I think, and as you guys mentioned as well, how calm he was for everything. I also would have broken down if I found <laughs> myself in another star system and couldn't remember anything. So yeah. I think that really led to his success was being able to just calm down, think through the problem, uh, make it work. But that was one thing where I kind of had to suspend a little bit of, you know, like, oh, just for sake of the story, I'm going to not think about that really. But um, yeah, I mean, more the likelihood of in his profession, he was a teacher, like even if he had that background um, with the millions of astronomers in the world, um, are there just not a lot that study like alien organism light or like that kind of thing? Is it, do, was it niche enough that you could say like, yeah, I could see there only being like one teacher who you had some research papers or was it something that you think really was just a really cool thing in the plot, but probably wouldn't happen in real life? Well, personally, I think it was twofold. I do think it was partially a narrative device for random facts that he happened to know. He'd be like, I know this because I'm a middle school science teacher. Um, right. But also, you know, the reason they came to him in the first place was because in the story he had published this paper that um, said alien life might not need water to exist and maybe we're wrong for focusing our search on looking for water to try to find life outside of earth. Um, and at the beginning they, they thought, you know, this microbe can live on the surface of the sun. There's no way that it can contain water. Um, so that's why they searched them out in the first place. So I would say that's a pretty niche, uh, 
field of study. Um, okay. But you're right that it, um, I think, also was partially a narrative device to But he was the one who was so ostracized, facts. right? He was ostracized right. for exactly that yeah. theory. And so nobody, or may, I guess in the story, not very other, many other people would subscribe to the same theory, given how much he was banned by the science community. So he was one of the few people who had claimed that. And the initial, during right. the initial trying to figure out what this thing is, they came across that paper, figured, well, there isn't any necessity of water in this life, so he is the obvious person to ask first. Yeah. And then he was roped into the whole project, came to, you know, to be more useful than they had anticipated, maybe, because of his broad uh -huh. knowledge of, of, of science and his, his, uh, his hands-on and pretty inventive approach to solving problems. And then I think he just was incorporated into the whole project more and more. So... Sure, you know, if you had a million people from whom you would choose, even if you winnow it down based on the coma thing, I guess he wasn't even winnowed down because of the coma, because he wasn't, it wasn't planned that he should go. But then, you know, you would maybe not pick him as the first place, but it's a dynamic in the first place, but it's a dynamic uh, evolution of the whole thing. So as he was present from the beginning, then it would, yeah, it's not too, in my mind, it's not too far fetched. And I, okay. so I would, I would take this, this kind of, uh, approach a step further. You know, this is not a scientific book. It's not a scientific paper. All the science yes. that he discusses or the logic that he discusses, they don't need to be scrut they don't need to be you don't need to be able to scrutinize them to the lowest to to you know the very basic extent. Sure he takes some liberties, but that's the point. And mm -hmm. as far as I can, you know, I, I thought about all the science that I knew of while he was saying it and i was like well i'm not gonna do the math because you know i was driving as i was listening to it mostly but I, but to first order i could not find any flaws automatically in there now you know you have one person running this entire spaceship and he basically wings it and flies by flies by the seat of his pants you know sure it's a stretch but then again it wasn't exactly mm -hmm. planned in a way where you have huge redundancy of, of pilots and so on and the same with him being chosen for that i think the logic is, is certainly i can follow that i don't think it's a it's where i say oh my god this is a really far-fetched thing i think it is plausible plausible okay yeah same with the sciences all the sciences that i thought of seemed all plausible i didn't find a single place where i thought well you know not at all. Mm -hmm. I think it's really, really excellent. Yeah, it sounds like it's pretty square on with the science. I would definitely say so. I couldn't find any fault with it. Completely agree yeah. with Casper. Yeah, I, I mostly, I mostly agree. I mean, I, I'm not. There's one problem I had, not with the science itself, but with like the linguistic aspect. And I'm not a linguist, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Okay. Well, then we'll save conversation yeah. for a little while. But um, that okay. was my only possible gripe. But the science is great. Um, and I did a little bit of research for this book and I listened to some Andy Weir interviews and he just says that he like mm -hmm. mostly Googles his stuff, which is kind of awesome to me. Like he's very much so amazing. of science is accessible online and mo like it's there for you to use. And like he writes these amazing books and Google is his main resource, which is kind of just really cool to me. So. That's insane. I didn't know that. I just assumed he had a scientific background, I guess. He does. Yeah, um, that's incredible. Yeah, I think he, do, he uh, does have a, I don't, I don't know, maybe like software engineering. He must. I could be wrong, wrong. But I mean, like, no one's an expert in everything. So, um, right. That is really cool. <laughs> yeah, I would be uh, computer programming. So, not even astronomy. <laughs> 
which is nuts. That's awesome. Um, but so for the fact that he was a science teacher and got selected for this, um, believable in the way that he was ostracized. So then became one of the only, uh, you know, people who kind of explored this scientifically, at least, uh, making him a target for the initial research for it. Um, how often in astronomy are people ostracized for really weird things? Is that uh, still common? I know that that is famously was, was a common thing, right, for any sort of sciences. But what about in today's world? Are, are there like really weird things that will throw people off? And I want to give a shout out to Percival Lowell, <laughs> who uh, got a lot of he was kind of teased a little bit by some of our peers at the time for looking into life on Mars, you know, but he didn't care. <laughs> he was like, I'm doing my own thing anyway. Um, but yeah, what are y'all, what are y'all's thoughts on that? It's subject to human nature and there's always people who are being ostracized, ostracized for weird stuff or not weird stuff. It happens everywhere. It's, it's sad, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah I'm sure it happens just as much as it happens in other fields. Really? Okay. Yeah, I don't think so. Catherine, what do you think? Yeah, I think for the most part, um, we're able to trust the peer review process. And of course, there are biases in the peer review process uh, and even biases in who gets to get to the point of publishing their papers in a journal and going through the peer review process. But I do think for the most part, I mean, we have to trust it, right? Because then, you know, how could we trust anything that's published if we don't <laughs> trust the review process? So right. I think for the most part, um, you know, papers that get through are worth publishing. Papers that don't get through might need a second look um, or maybe just the idea uh, isn't worth investigating at this time. Um, mm -hmm. I agree that unfortunately maybe there are some ideas that, um, should be published and aren't, but I personally trust the, the peer review process for the most yeah. part. Well, and you never know what it will inspire. Like, yeah, there weren't Martians on Mars, Percival Lowell, but, uh, he inspired all of this incredible sci-fi and interest and excitement about outer space, which fed into World of the Worlds directly and uh, coined the term Martian and made sci-fi as we know it in the, you know, from the early days, the early 1900s on. Uh, so who knows if he hadn't started looking for life on Mars. I mean, maybe someone else would have, but if he hadn't done it then, where would we be now with our interest in astronomy and space and sci-fi and you know, or who wouldn't have been inspired by listening to world of the worlds on the radio and later becoming a scientist, you never know. So, you know, no bad things to study, go for it. Ask, ask the weird questions, but, um, it definitely worked out for Ryland. Well, depending on your perspective, it worked out for Ryland. So he observed an astronomical anomaly that later turned out to be a single-celled extraterrestrial life form. Uh, and these dots appear to feed on the sun, and their trail forms an arc between the sun and Venus, which is uh, what the scientists refer to as the Petrova line. Uh, and that 
this has potentially uh, apocalyptic implications since it means that the sun is effectively dying. Uh, it's predicted that it will lead to a 10 to 15% decrease in the sun's output. And the mission is to figure out how to stop this. Um, also, I want to give a shout out this outline I stole <laughs> um, from the from the internet, uh, but this outline is available online at thebibliophile.com. Uh, so, sorry, I forgot to credit that. I didn't write this outline. <laughs> I got it online. So, um, but yeah, so the sun is um, effectively dying. So if our sun were to, you know, the 10 to 15% decrease, um, did that, again, from an ast um, astronomy perspective, was that an, an exciting problem to see how they were going to figure that out? Um, is that something that has been th kind of thought through before? Or, you know, I know y'all literally study stars, so I'll let you go, <laughs> tell me. So I, um... I think it even took it a step further, right? It was an exponential um, dimming right. of the sun that wasn't just going to stop at 10 to 15%. It was started slow, but it was going to exponentially decrease the luminosity and the output basically of the sun, as you mentioned. And uh, that would obviously be catastrophic. From a, from a <laughs> non-astrophage-involved stellar evolution point of view, okay, so not by the book, but in, in, in real life, if you will, the output of the stars or the brightness of the star will actually increase over time as uh, to a certain extent, but it'll, it'll get brighter over the long period of time. So the sun's luminosity is actually going up a little bit slowly. Oh. You know, certainly you cannot explain global, global warming with that. That's, that's a, that's definitely a no go, but it slowly <laughs> increases over time. It does not decrease over time until it gets to the next stage. And then but I don't think we're here to talk about stellar evolution. So, um, the, 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 the notion <laughs> we can, then we have to rename this podcast. Um, yeah. we, so the notion of a star dimming during the main phase, its main sequence lifetime, you know, the, the part where it spends most of its life in this case, the sun, 10 billion years, roughly, where it's 10, spends 10 billion years of its life during that time. Dimming is, is not something that you would, uh, yet you would, uh, encounter. Uh, you know, without any kind of other phenomenon, not intrinsically, it could be it could be occulted by something or whatever, but it's not. It wouldn't happen from just a stellar evolution point of view. So, from that point of view, it's extremely significant. And having mm -hmm. that problem as a an issue, yeah, that would be <laughs> adequately portrayed in the book. It would be worldwide. It would be ap apocalyptic. And uh, unless right. you can address it, it lights out literally. Mm -hmm. And there's no way to keep that secret. Like other people would notice this, right? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I don't know how many ice ages you've missed in your life, but I think you'd be you know, pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah, there, there would be other solar astronomers around the world. It's not like, I guess my point is, it's not like the government would like be keeping this top secret classified because there would be people around the world studying and seeing this happen. Yes, I don't think governments can keep things classified anyway, unless you classified in a certain agency, but there's too many people who talk, but or like to talk like to hear themselves talk, maybe that's the way to say it. But I think if, if you're talking about natural sciences, keeping something secret is, is very difficult. Mm -hmm. Very difficult.
Yeah, I would agree that uh, scientists have a very hard time keeping their mouth shut, so I'm sure that would get out quickly. Um, but yeah, I completely agree. It's a fascinating problem. Um, it reminds you how delicate our life is here on Earth, um, how mm -hmm. much we rely on energy from the sun. Um, I thought it was a very nuanced issue with you know, we're currently dealing with climate change and it talked about in the book how um, the dimming of the star reversed climate change in like two years um, compared to us getting to this point after a hundred years or so. So yeah, I thought it was a very fascinating problem. I've always enjoyed uh, disaster movies. <laughs> so yeah. it kind of reminded me of those. It reminded me of shout out to this random four-part Canadian docu-series from like 2010 called Aftermath that investigated problems kind of like that. Um, so mm -hmm. it was definitely of interest to me and um, I'm not a biologist. So right, um, yeah. learning about these microbes and, um, you know, it wasn't just an astronomical problem. It was a biological problem. Um, so that mm -hmm. was fascinating to me as well, having to figure that out. <laughs> All right. Um, so Ryland eventually recalls his research into these particles. Uh, he's a junior high, uh, high school science teacher who formerly worked in speculative extraterrestrial biology, which is just astrobiology, right? Uh, yeah. That's a legitimate study. Um, astrobiology's, there are a bunch of astrobiologists, so that check. That's a believable thing. Uh, the speculative, I guess, might quirk some eyebrows. Um, but, you know, I know in a previous podcast, we were talking about the difference between theoretical observation and I forgot, just regular observation, I guess. And, you know, that was enough for two astronomers to debate for like 20 minutes. So <laughs> adding in the word speculative as an adjective, I'm sure is probably what caused that, uh, ostr ostracized nature of his work we were talking about earlier. Well, high risk, high reward, right? I mean, there's always, right. the, I think it's a, it's a healthy approach in, in science from a, even from a, point of view of a reviewer uh, approving or rejecting proposals to have a small amount of high risk, high reward science component mm -hmm. be present. Because if we all do the same thing, you know, then our progress is incremental and high risk, high reward means that many of those projects don't go anywhere. Sure. But every once in a while, you have that one big quantum leap. So speculative extraterrestrial uh, biology or whatever, whatever you just mentioned, I can't remember the, the words. It's probably, yeah. it's probably not something in which you could get your PhD, you know, beyond your PhD, but it's it's certainly a field that you could say, well, or maybe a proposal, you know, round where you could say, well, I'm proposing something speculative. So, yeah, I, I, I'd say. But yeah, so this next part for the science anyway is more in biology. So we discover that the astrophage can store enormous amounts of energy as mass. They can uh, then expel that energy as light, the force of which they use is momentum to move around. 
They get their energy from stars such as the sun. Then because they need carbon, they go searching for carbon dioxide, which is what Venus is comprised of mostly or largely. Um, and that's where they breed and then they return to the sun with their offspring. And the data suggests that astrophage have infected many stars and will affect any stars within an eight light year radius. So um, that's when I learned that there are stars within eight light years. I, again, light years, I'm, I'm new to that, but that was interesting to me. I didn't know they were that close. That doesn't sound very far away. Uh, yeah, there's some. There are some, you said? Yeah, yeah, there's a bunch. Oh, I don't know the number, many few tens probably. And to... they use light as their as their energy source, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess any thoughts on that? Again, I know you're not astrobiologist, but this is all just so above my head. You could tell me anything and I'd be like, okay, <laughs> I believe you. Catherine, do you remember? I don't remember this in great detail anymore. I think I thought there was neutrinos that were involved actually as well. Yes, there was something about so neutrinos, well. and it. What's a neutrino? Yeah, they called it. What's a neutrino? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> that is so mean. Um, <laughs> a neutrino is a is a particle that's that's uh that's you know one of the many part different kinds of particles in the universe, and the neutrinos are the special aspect about the neutrinos is that they have very very little interaction with anything else. That means they pass through everything. They do not get stopped by Earth or people or nothing. I don't know how many neutrinos you have passing through you every second, but it's in the billions. Got it probably or more, I don't even know, but it's many, many, many. And so the the neutrino mass, how much how much mass they have is is one of the if they have any at all, because they move at essentially light speed, is one of the one of the particle physics questions in astronomy, if you will. And so Isn't I, that what Kylo Keen studied in the Arctic or wherever he was, was neutrinos passing through there are nice. there there are yeah there are some experiments. Uh, Kamiokande is one of them, where where they can catch a few of them, and I think the number that that are being caught in these big detectors that are underground is not consistent with theoretical predictions, which leads to different flavors in neutrinos. And then I'm on very thin ice because I I don't remember <laughs> this so well anymore. Okay. I did this in grad school, Got but that's it. a long time ago. It's coming back to me. It's coming back to me now. Okay. Um, if I remember correctly in the book, um, <laughs> there, the astrophage has a super cross section. And so like Casper was saying, neutrinos interact with very few things. They're a bunch passing through us and the earth at any given time. But for some reason, um, the astrophase, which is Asia able to capture or something along those lines, the neutrinos, even though they were so small. Okay. Um, and you have a note about the, um, him using Celsius versus Kelvin, which I thought was really interesting. And I'm assuming it's to make it easier to understand as the reader, but can you talk about that a little bit when he's doing these measurements? Yeah, so I was uh, taking some notes the second time around of reading the book just to, uh, you know, discussion points. And pretty much the only nitpicky thing I could get at uh, for where the science might be uh, different from what an astronomer would write was mainly units. Um, For instance, we were talking about light years. 
so he mainly uses light years throughout the book, um, whereas astronomers mainly use a unit called a parsec um, instead to measure distance. And also um, he mainly uses Celsius. Um, for instance, he's talking about the temperature of Venus and uh, says that in Celsius, whereas most astronomers talk about planet and star temperatures in Kelvin. Um, but mm. again, that's extremely nitpicky. Um, I did find well, it interesting. I talking about that. He talked about his, where he was like, depending on what it was, because he was trying to determine if he was American or, or British. Right. <laughs> right. I was going to say, it's interesting because he does use metric units when a scientist would use metric units. Um, but for temperature and distances, uh, long, large distances, um, I did notice that it was a little bit off, but that's really my only critique of the, the science of the book at all. Well, and given that we're astronomers, we're terrible with units anyways. I think the that inconsistencies in the field in astronomy and units are disastrous. You know, the whole the fact that we use the CGS units, so the centimeter gram second units, as opposed to the meter kilogram second units is, uh, it, it is what it is, but it is debatable, let's put it this way. So I think with units, we've got we've got our own issues. That is very true. <laughs> so, for instance, the surface brightness, which essentially the brightness of the surface of a star is measured in magnitudes per square arc seconds, which is really not intuitive. Magnitude to square arc? No, magnitudes per square arc seconds, magnitudes. which is not a function of distance, mind you. Very strange. It's conserved with different magnitudes distances. Per I know those words. <laughs> I can't understand them together. Magnitude per square arc seconds. Okay. Uh, weird. <laughs> yeah. That won't be the first term that I've heard in astronomy where I'm like, what? I'm really excited to talk about something that uh, Catherine also noticed just in talking about this data, right, was the that they use data from amateur astronomers. Um, and, and Catherine, you know, tell us why Strat used amateur astronomy data versus professional astronomers? Yeah, so um, in the beginning when they're trying to figure out if the sun and these other local stars actually are dimming, um, they, Strat talks about how they used data from amateur astronomers, and I think that's very much based in reality. Um, mm -hmm. In the book, they do say uh, professional astronomers don't study nearby stars. Um, I would clarify that I personally study nearby stars, but they are um, very small and very faint, so they're more right. difficult to see, um, might need more specialized instruments and telescopes. Mm -hmm. um, but, and my advisor, Gerard Van Bell, who we say always comes up on these podcasts, <laughs> would disagree with me what I'm about to say, but um, I think it's less common for astronomers to study bright stars just because, mm -hmm. uh, professional astronomers, I should say, but just because they have been studied for so long. Um, again, he would disagree with me. There is interesting science to be done with bright stars. Casper uh, would probably disagree with me as well. <laughs> but um, often it is um, amateur astronomers who are studying these these bright stars that we know pretty well and also getting this long-term data. So I would say that amateur astronomers and citizen scientists are extremely important um, mm -hmm. for doing this kind of work. 
I, I would also say that it's, it always bugs me when when they're being referred to as amateur astronomers because in many ways they are, I've met people that know so much more astronomy that I would ever know. Oh yeah, among that's these very guys. true. It's incredible, <laughs> and the the value of these observations are are it's just they can hardly be overstated. I mean, it's exactly yeah. like Catherine said. You know, there's they have large fields of view. They do repeated data. They do comet searching or something. I mean, the the value. Yeah. To, to the field of astronomy that amateurs, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but I hold them in the highest regard, that they contribute is just enormous. So I, 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 I'd be foolish in a in Strat's position, said Dutch leader of the world, um, you know, to not use all the data she has at her disposal. And the quantity of data that come from amateurs would be very significant. Now you can't compare that to space missions, but in terms of quantity ground-based would be very significant because of all the telescopes that are out there. Let's continue into some more sciencey stuff. Uh, so now in present day in the book, Ryland finds that his spaceship is headed for Tau Ceti. Am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. I never yep. say the astronomy stuff right. Tau Ceti, a star located in a cluster of other astrophage-infected stars, but unlike the others, it has not dimmed. Presumably, he is there to find out why Tau Ceti has resisted infection, and he comes across an alien spaceship once he's in that system. The alien astronaut, Rocky, is from a planet Arid that is dealing with the same problem regarding their star, 40 Eridani. He is investigating Tau Ceti for the same reason. Okay, go. <laughs> like, there are so much here. Exoplanets, they saw that it was infected by astrophase, but it wasn't dimming. So, like, I forget. How did they know that it was infected by astrophase? And, um, is 40 Eridani a real star? Is this based on a real system? What do y'all think? I have a cool little fun fact, actually. Um, so oh, I know it? I know both of you are, are stellar astronomers and you definitely know more than I do, but uh, the Eridani system is a triplet star system. So there's three stars. But in terms of like a sci-fi connection, um, the, some of the creators of Star Trek, most notably Gene Roddenberry, um, in 1991, yes. wrote a letter to Sky and Telescope outlining an argument for their star system as the home of Vulcan. So the same planet that, uh, like, Arid, what? potentially, like, uh, is, was, like, in a way, predicted by Star Trek, I guess. That was the star system that the Star Trek creators named for Vulcan, which is, like, kind of a weird connection, and I didn't know that until after I read the book. So I think that's fun. But anyway, I just wanted to say that first. So now we can get into the science. But... Wait, in the star system, they named it... They named... Wait. So this star, this star system, they named something for Vulcan. Can you repeat that? Yeah. So some of the creators of Star Trek. So this wasn't um, necessarily like named in the series, but after the fact. So in 1991, one of the creators, Gene Roddenberry um, and some others, they collaborated with some Harvard astronomers, actually. So it's based off of real science um, that... 40 Eridani would be a good place to have a planet, namely Vulcan. So hypothetically, this would be where Spock is from. 
Um, I mean, of course, these That's are two different, two different universes. So Arid is not the same as Vulcan. I'm not claiming that, but it's just like a sci sci-fi connection with the about. same star. So. <laughs> That's amazing. Ah, oh, that's so cool. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that either. Me neither. Very so cool. we love 40 Eridani. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's awesome. I didn't know it was a triplet star system either. So maybe as a as a background information, Eridanus, right, is the is the name of the constellation, and the then you have the uh, Alpha Eridani would be the genitive case. So the Alpha star in the constellation Eridanus would be the brightest. I'm not sure if it's Eridanus or whatever, but anyway, the you know the 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 name of that constellation Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and so on, and then it goes through the numbers after that. So 40 would be the whatever. That would be in the 60th brightest oh. star in that constellation, something like that. Really? I believe Eridani that's right. 40. I'm not sure if it goes down to 40, but I think I think so. So we could see the star uh, in Flagstaff with a dark enough sky. Yes, you can see this with your naked eye. Um, I have, I with personally, eye, really, on on good conditions, from what I've read, I haven't personally sought out to do it, but I think it's one of the few stars that. Um, I mean, an exoplanet was discovered around this star, and it was basically one of the only stars that you could observe by eye from Earth where exoplanet has been discovered, which stood out to me. Um, but I know that's kind oh. of jumping, jumping ahead a little bit. So, yeah, I looked up Eridani 40, and the first thing that comes up is a whole bunch of pictures of Vulcan and of Spock. That's amazing. <laughs> that is so cool. Okay. Uh, respect. I want to be able to find this star in the sky. That is my new mission. It's um, a, so its visual magnitude is almost six. So it's very faint. You need to know exactly oh. where to look. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, I might not be the person for that then. <laughs> um, but with, with even some it. small binoculars, you'd be able to find it. Oh, okay. I'll and it is John a triple star it. system, exactly like, uh, like Claire was saying. So in the in the solar system, there are three stars. There's one star, only the sun. Oh, in this oh in the Eridani, forty Eridani system, there are three stars. Correct. Yes. Again, I, I say this every episode too. It's always Gerard, and it's always three body problem. How? <laughs> How can there be three stars in that system? They orbit. Uh, I'm don't want to monopolize the conversation here, Catherine. If you want to chime in. But you read the book twice, um, <laughs> so the the they would orbit a common center of mass, and but in order for that to be stable, the period uh, you know they they'll be uh, the uh, two of those stars will orbit around each other in a shorter period than around the common center of stars with the common center of gravity with the third star. I don't remember what exactly that period ratio has to be in order for it to be stable, but it's something like seven to one or eight to one or something like that. Does okay. that make sense? So, so two stars that orbit around each other in a short period, and then they the right. two, the, this double star system will orbit around a third star in a longer period that's at least a factor eight more, something like that. Um, oh, uh, let's talk about Rocky really quickly. Um, Iridians see, quote unquote, using passive sonar instead of light, and their language 
consists of cords. Uh, their atmosphere is also very hot and filled with ammonia, which is lethal to uh, of high amounts to humans. One thing that wasn't mentioned in this outline that I want to mention is the amount of digits that they have and how that influences their counting system. So we have 10 digits and, you know, typically outside of a few, I think, cultures, um, historically, we count to 10 in, you know, uh, then it's 20 and that's our, that's how our counting system works. I never thought, I just never considered it. I didn't realize until I read this book and until we met Rocky that the reason that we count that, you know, our system is by 10 is because that's how many fingers we evolved to have on our hands. That's cool. Yep. Um, what else did you guys notice about Rocky? I guess that you liked. I should say that since I listened to the audiobook, I don't know if you listened to the audiobook too, the chords in which he speaks are actually played in the audiobook initially. So the very, very early parts of Rocky's conversation are just chords, and Ryland tries to figure out uh, what, what is he saying here. And as he finds out how to interpret the, the Eridani uh, speech, Rocky's voice is always under you know, played through some sort of vocoder where the chords are there as well. So it's the same Ray Porter's voice, but it's like through, uh, through a keyboard almost. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, but as Rocky is very happy and excited, his voice goes up in, in pitch. And if when he's sad, his voice goes down in pitch and it's done in the audiobook. So you actually hear almost the emotion in the voice based on the pitch of the chords underneath the the spoken word in the audiobook. So it was done really well, I thought. <gasps> That's super cool. Their whole way of like trying to figure out how to communicate was fascinating. Yeah. Catherine, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I thought it was fascinating the way that he learned how to communicate with uh, Rocky and, you know, use the, the Fourier transform to uh, discern which chords uh, which notes were being played, what chords they were. Um, and they figured it out, <laughs> figured out how to communicate. Mm -hmm. I think that'll be the most difficult task if we ever encounter intelligent life is figuring out how to communicate. So um, I thought it was really interesting. Claire, what did you think? Um, I think it's interesting. I mean, I'm always, I'm always curious to learn about how other people think we'll communicate with other life in the universe. Um, and I know I mentioned earlier that um, I thought this part was maybe perhaps a little bit implausible. Mostly, I think, I think mo mostly it's fine. I just think the amount of time um, between Rocky and Grace meeting versus them being able to have like basically a full conversation was incredibly short to me. Um, like for us, yeah. women, learning another language takes years usually. Um, and that's just with us already having like a basic understanding of human grammar and things like that. And so when we take all of those away, I think it's, I don't know, I just thought it was a little bit quick, but it's a book. I can't yeah. get mad about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, uh, I know that if you're like immersed in a language, it's easier to pick up on stuff. So maybe he was kind of factoring that in and the stress of it. 
Um, but yeah, uh, I would think that, you know, in the exposition, maybe it would have been mentioned that he spoke a lot of languages to hint that he was good at picking it up. But I don't think he spoke any other languages aside from English. So he also yeah. had his little database, uh, his database right. of sounds that he said, yeah, he stopped using that pretty quickly. But, you know, he did right. have kind of a, a helper along the way uh, right. to yeah. remind him of what chords mean what word. His little translator. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, he yeah. was certainly immersed. I mean, if the only other person in the universe that you can speak to speaks another language, I'd call that immersed. And, <laughs> right. you know, again, in the book, it says, well, you know, whatever, two weeks passed or four weeks passed or something like that. And it just sent it said in one sentence, but you kind of, you know, you obviously can't have that be in the book, like the entire evolution, because the book would take mm -hmm. I don't know, 50 hours with mostly dull language learning in the middle. So uh, you know, that wouldn't really work either. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was great when Rocky first started coming out with, uh, you know, with being cynical or something like that. He said, oh, great. You're being an idiot and now you want to travel or whatever, you know, direct a spaceship into an atmosphere. Great idea or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they were all beat up. And <laughs> that was really good. All of a sudden he figured out, oh, this is how your, you know, Earth humor and stuff like that. Uh, or when they had yeah. the taboo of saying this is Earth culture or arid culture. And it's like, all right, well, we'll just accept it as it is. Uh, it's kind of a nice. Watching them sleep, right? Yeah. It's weird. Very, very, uh, you know, interspecies appreciation for each other, for each other's cultures. I thought that was very well yeah. conceived and another, oh, cool. I never thought about that kind of, you know, mm -hmm. effect. He was lucky Rocky was such a respectful alien. <laughs> I guess if you're trying yeah. to save your entire species, you're going to make it work with this other uh, yeah. species. But <laughs> um, we love Rocky. Everybody loves Rocky. He's amazing. Or the Darwinistic, the Darwinistic approach, too, right? Well, he needs to be watched to sleep because they're so defenseless. And so it evolved, even though there's no threat in some spaceship, obviously, but the the, Dar the Darwinian or Darwinistic, whatever evolution of that whole species that they need to be protected when they sleep because they're entirely defenseless. And so he cannot mm -hmm. sleep until somebody else watches. I think that's really cool. It's like these little, these mm -hmm. little underlying, oh, by the way, this is how we evolve, you know, and now I'm just applying it to another, another species right. entirely. It was brilliant. I, I love those little nuggets and they were everywhere. This is terrific. They were, I love that too. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I loved uh, I love that connection to how it became like a social construct and uh, a safety net as adorable. But I I thought Rocky was adorable. I am excited if they do a movie to see how they build Rocky. Yeah, you're the you're the language specialist, right? I mean, you can probably appreciate yeah. that even more. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I I just that whole chapter uh, is probably my favorite chapter actually in the whole book when he and Rocky were like figuring each other out. There is an extremely strong material from Rocky's planet called uh, that the protagonist calls Xenonite uh, that Rocky's ship is made from. So that was an interesting plot device, I think, and technically, scientifically possible. I don't know. Sounds right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, not as far as we know. Not as far as we know. 
it's an inert gas. It doesn't react with anything else. So putting it into some sort of, I'm not sure if lattice is the right word, but in any kind of construct where it bonds with something else is not known how we would do that. Uh, but that mm -hmm. I'm immediately at the end of my knowledge with material sciences there. <laughs> I, I really don't have much background there. I did like that they were, um, so they're at Tau Ceti, and they saw that that star also, there was astro, there were astrophage, and it was going to another planet, and they just named the nearby planet Adrian, you know. Um, I sort of liked that, that it didn't have this, like, Greek or, like, you know, highfalutin name, which is Adrian. Um, kind of reminded me of uh, Uranus at one point being George, <laughs> which like I get the meaning at the time, but it would be funny in retrospect, just like, you know, Saturn and Jupiter and George. <laughs> so, Yeah, well, I think in the book, um, Rocky got to name the planet um, after his mate. And um, so I think it's implied that Ryland is naming the planet because he used to come up with a proper noun in English. Um, I think that at least I understood it as, you know, he named the planet after someone that he cared about deeply as well. So we never know yeah. who Adrian is, but that was my assumption. Mm -hmm. I believe that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so they did, there's some risky stuff and they're doing their best around this sun to get these astrophage and sample them and do some more scientific uh, processes to figure out why it's not making their sun, the sun dim, um, which will, you know, we sort of already talked about that at the beginning, so I'm, I'm going to skip over that. But there's a predator called Taumoeba. Taumiba. 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 And it dies through nitrogen, uh, which means that it can't survive on planets like Venus and um, the other planets near these suns. So then they breed a strain of this Taumiba uh, that's resistant to nitrogen. So now they're like, you know, making a, a genetically modified uh, yeah. strain of this stuff <laughs> to make it work for their use. Um, and on the way back, uh, so they're like, okay, great. We have this now. I mean, there's obviously a whole bunch of scientific process about trying to breed out uh, or, or breed this thing that is resistant to nitrogen. Um, I don't know if you guys had anything specific from an ast astronomer's perspective on that. But um, basically, he finds out that... Uh, the enhanced Tamiba is uh, able to hide in the xenonite material that uh, Rocky's planet created uh, and that the tanks were built with. So um, he's worried about his friend Rocky not making it back to the planet because his entire ship is built with this stuff. So this new breed of Tamiba can seep through and escape. So he sends his probes off to Earth and goes to Rocky's planet to save him and live out his days, presumably on Arid. 
So what were, uh, were there any more thoughts that you guys had in your notes that you wanted to discuss and, um, how did you, what do you think of the ending of this book? I, I loved the ending. I thought it was very cute. Um, that not only do we, you know, he gets to survive, first of all, he thought he wasn't going to be able to. And, um, then we find out that earth was saved because the sun is back to full luminosity. The astronomers on Arid had discovered that. And then mm-hmm. it ends with him getting to teach, a whole little class of Eridanis and, um, he, you know, Eridians, sorry, Eridani was the language. Um, but you know, he talks about throughout the book, how much he loves his kids and, um, his classes and being a teacher. So I thought it was very cute and full circle that he was able to teach on his new planet at the end. Yeah. I loved, I loved that part and he didn't seem to care. He just wanted to teach. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah, he stayed true to that sentiment he had the entire book. And I mm-hmm. and I really end up, you know, the, the hesitation that he had about going in the first place, right? He wanted to stay on Earth and not go on the Hail Mary because he wanted to teach. And it came sort of full circle. I thought that was really great. Um, oh, yeah. There were another couple of nuggets in there as well, right, you, that you just briefly mentioned, right? The Talmiva are the natural predator of the astrophage so they eat the astrophage just as you as you pointed out and and then he basically in order to be able to uh export the taumiba to the other star systems and make it work so that they will eat the astrophage there he had to genetically breed an extremely resistant kind of taumiba which again is you know a Darwinism, applied Darwinism, I'm not sure if you can even use those two words together, but ultimately he applied Darwinism directly and learned in the process that evolution, which is what he was trying to do there, doesn't work Mm -hmm. according to the prescription that you give it, but does its own thing. Again, you know, one of those things that I wish people were more aware of. I have, I don't think people have any idea about how we came to be and why you know, the complexities on this planet are the way they are. It's because of these things that he put it into a nugget and he does it in whatever, four weeks or whatever it is. So, you know, yeah. a bit ambitious, I get it, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. He drives that concept home. You know, it's, I think it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's brilliant. It, it really is. Yeah. And um, so just to, you know, to, to, to have another nugget there, there was another one that I was thinking of and it'll come back to me in just a second, but this one I really liked a lot. But again, you know, he puts a nice little wow effect in there. Mm-hmm. And I'd forgotten that's why he didn't really want to leave because he wanted to teach and he didn't want to sign up to do that. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Claire, what did you think? I liked the ending. I admit I, it was a bit unexpected to me. I thought he was going to go back to Earth. So I was surprised when like all of a sudden, like we ended up on um, Arid, which I mean, I'm not mad about it. Of course, I, it was just unexpected to me, but. Um, I also really like how uh, Grace's character did come full circle with his teaching. I mean, for me, I think the fact that he was a middle school science teacher was kind of like the cornerstone for me throughout my whole book. Um, whenever like I interacted more with Ryland Grace's character, it made me think of my own interactions with my own middle school science teachers and how formative that was for me and how much I learned from them and how much when I was in their classroom, like, I was amazed about how much they knew about so many different things. And it's, I don't know, to me, it was just like, it was fun to remember being a kid and learning about science um, from the reminder of a teacher standpoint. 
and how creative you have to get in education. Very too. creative, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. I just remembered the other nugget, um, and that's when he, you know, there was always this problem that he was going to run out of food on the way back to Earth, right? That was he had right. oxygen, he had enough water and all that stuff, but he didn't have enough food, so he would die, and he knew that he would potentially die when he went back to to uh, to Rocky to save him, and then Rocky made him eat the taumiba, which initially he thought that's a crazy idea, but then he ate some, and I guess it sustained him for a while. But then at the very end, just before the book ends, he says, "Oh yeah, now I'm going to eat another burger that's made with the recreation of my own muscle tissue," and I think that's brilliant, right? He basically oh God, meat, forgot about that. <laughs> meat from himself that he then eats. I think that's fantastic. I mean, who has an idea like that? I thought it was just absolutely great. I'm not. I don't know how that's possible, but why not, right? I mean, it's meat. And Island meat burger, and stuff like that, and yeah, I think he called it a me burger. A me burger, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so I thought that was great, and all these little things in there that you really have to pay attention, or else you miss them. And I think the book is is so terrific because there's so many little things in there of that kind of quality you know with the he applies mm -hmm. darwinism he makes he duplicates himself so he has a food source that's just too cool really is. i forgot about the meat burgers that's right Ew. so any last thoughts about this book I know we've gone over, there are so many cool things to talk about. I knew that would happen, but. Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was a great book. Um, touched on so many different scientific concepts. And, you know, even as a scientist for my job, I learned so much. Um, and mm -hmm. I think it's just a really great way for people to be exposed to so many different concepts and it's just a great story, great characters. Um, I really enjoyed it. I'm going to show off one of your notes. Uh, said that uh, there are a few things here I think that were interesting. Uh, you're talking about commercial off-the-shelf equipment. Uh, yeah, it talked about in the book how they didn't want to develop any new technology that would... Uh, you know, that would specifically work in zero gravity. They wanted to use um, equipment that had already been tested a number of times. And that's why they did the whole centrifuge two-piece spaceship thing um, just to be able to make that work. And I thought that was really interesting and um, probably the correct way to go. And I, I was just noting how... Um, for instance, in the instrument that uh, my advisor and I built, we used a lot of commercial off-the-shelf pieces um, because they have been tested. Uh, they're cheaper, they're easy to get, um, and they work well. So um, just a parallel to our life at Lowell. Uh -huh. And Gerard, you and Gerard built that tool, built that instrument for the, for the Lowell Discovery Telescope. I saw yep. that in your notes, yes. which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one more thing I wanted to call out because it's super cool. <laughs> um, uh, you were talking about the distance between the stars. So you say when we first hear about um, what Arid uh, is like, uh, Rocky's planet, 
the protagonist said that Arid is extremely close to its host star, about a fifth of the distance between Earth and the sun. Uh, and you said that what we know of planets in orbit, um, you know of planets who are much even like closer to their host stars. Yeah. So I, I was just noting that, you know, he talks about that um, Arid is so much closer to its host star than Earth to the sun. And that's true. Um, but we also know of some that are even closer. I think I was just Googling really? um, the period for the unconfirmed planet around 40 Eridani is supposed to be about 42 days. Um, but we know some planets in periods of a couple of days, few days. Um, so even, even less, it's like even, even less, less than 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So and we're a year away for context, right? 365 right. days away. So, um, it's, it's an extreme planet compared to earth, but not nearly as extreme as some of the exoplanets that have been discovered. That's nuts. <laughs> um, Claire, any, any final, any final words, any last thoughts? Um, no, I just think science fiction is so much fun to read. This was a great one. I think there's something for everyone in Project Hail Mary. I mean, science is all around us. So uh, Andy Weir does great with bringing that science from our life into another universe, which is really cool. So I enjoyed it. That was so fun. I was so excited to hear what um, what scientists would think of this book, because from a layman's perspective, absolutely incredible. And it's even cooler hearing you guys talk about what a good job he did uh, incorporating science and scientific method and the way that scientists think uh, into his storytelling. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Super fun episode. Thank you, Thanks, Cody. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Cody. This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lowell.edu slash donate. Thanks for listening.